The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it's the summer of wildfires and mushroom clouds as smoke chokes the skies and Oppenheimer attracts our eyeballs and cash. Those of us alive today have lived through the Anthropocene era. Anthropos, humans, that is, the era when humans could and did impact the environment on a global scale. It's an era that's been with us for decades. It's not over yet. Maybe starting at the moment when we knew we could destroy everything and ending, hopefully, when we'll determine that we won't go ahead and do just that. What does that mean for literature? Well, writers are paid to observe and to comment, and so they have, from vantage points around the world, and from above the world and below it too, as it turns out. Our guest today, Patrick Whitmarsh, has looked up and down and has written about these writers and their vertical science. He'll join us today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining us today. We're still taking requests for dream guests. Well, enough about that. Let's turn to Emily Dickinson. And then we're going to have Patrick Whitmarsh, who has written about our potential extinction and what writers have made of that. Don DeLillo, Colson Whitehead, and others. A little Edgar Allan Poe in there, too. And then... After we hear from Patrick, because I love you all, we'll have a little extra content for you. How about a My Last Book from Christina Jarvis, one of our Kurt Vonnegut experts? What will she choose to read as her last book? We will see. We move from poem 23 to poem 32 in our selection of Emily Dickinson poems. Here it is. The morns are meeker than they were, the nuts are getting brown, the berry's cheek is plumper, the rose is out of town. The maple wears a gayer scarf, the field a scarlet gown. Lest I should be old-fashioned, I'll put a trinket on. Okay, that's it. I love this one. It's a poem of autumn, of course, as we steam toward autumn ourselves. The cadence tells us what we're getting here. We have a little four-line, a couple of four-line stanzas. You can almost fill in the blanks, right? An autumn poem with this kind of cadence. Let me let me throw one out here. I'll just compose one on the spot. The leaves have fallen from the trees. The greens have turned to gold. The farmer's gathered up his corn. The grass is getting old, etc., Simple basis for a poem. I, the poet, look around and see the state of nature as the seasons are turning. And I comment on this, and you feel the way I feel too. And we judge such a poem by whether it escapes the quicksand pitfalls of cliche and sentimentality. The poem I composed on the spot does not, really. The leaves have fallen from the trees. What does that give us? That we don't already know. The greens have turned to gold. Okay. 
Farmers gathered up his corn. There's nothing really there. Those, those stray observations. We want more than that. Does it make us feel the season? Does it surprise us with its imagery or at least impress us with its verbal acuity? So let's look at Dickinson again. What do I like here? The first line, the morns are meeker than they were. Well, that's nice. We know that feeling, right? When the bright summer days have, have given way to misty, maybe foggy autumn mornings. Mornings when the, the sun is arriving a little late. And even arriving late struggles to really brighten things the way the sun was able to, to sharpen them up in summer. Mornings that don't quite pop. Meeker than they were just a month or two ago. Then we have, following that, the nuts are getting brown. Not a whole lot of cleverness built into that, but that's okay. It lands. Berries have a plumper cheek. Okay, that gives us a little bit. We can kind of picture the way the berries bulge as they get more and more ripe. Kind of nice. And then the next line is great. The rose is out of town. Okay. Oh, boy, that's interesting. The rose went on some kind of journey, like a friend we might miss, gone. But the absence is not weakness on the rose's part. It's not the rose withered and died and fell apart before our eyes. It's, it's, it's on us who stuck around and are now lonely. The rose has moved up, moved on. <laughs> That's kind of interesting, right? Then we get into our next one. We, we're shifting now to something that's, that's more like a woman than nature. I guess it's mother nature, you might say. The maple wears a gayer scarf. The field has on a scarlet gown. We're looking vertical with the maple tree and horizontal with the field, but it doesn't really matter. Either way, what we're seeing is adornment, ornament. Dressiness. We're we're setting something up here, by the way. Two phenomena of tree in a field. Both of them seem to have put on better clothes, the way autumn can be said to be wearing better clothes. The color is an ornament. They're in some ways, though, this is still in keeping with the rose, right? They're doing something better than we are. The rose left town. Moved on, probably up. In that case, in the case of the tree in the field, decked out. Ritzy. A gayer scarf. A scarlet dress. That's, that's, what does that mean for us? Well, our speaker tells us. And remember that Emily said, when I said I, I meant everyone. When I say I in my poems, I mean everyone. This isn't special to her and her experience. She's universalizing it for us. It's how we all feel. That's what she's positing anyway. We don't have to be a New England woman in the 19th century to feel this way about autumn. How do we feel when we see the world looking so spectacular as it does in autumn? Well, lest I should be old-fashioned, I'll put a trinket on. 
love this line. It's Rilke telling us that a statue of the archaic Apollo will tell us something. It says you must change your life. Well, nature can tell us something too. You're part of this, you know. That's nature talking to us. We lowly humans. You're the morning and the nuts and the berries and the rose. You're the tree. You're the field. You're changing seasons too, aren't you, human? As you get ready to decay. Isn't this all of us in it together? Humans and nature, both nature's part of humanity and human beings are very much a part of nature. Do you want to just just galump your way out there into that spectacular autumn countryside that's got a gay scarf and a scarlet dress on? Won't you feel like the one who hasn't changed or hasn't changed enough? You're old news the way you are. You're stuck in the wrong season. Put on a trinket. At least put on a trinket. What is the trinket here? I love that word, by the way. It's not all... I'll put on my finest jewelry, or I will wear my my finest clothing. Although, uh, finest jewelry, it could be that. It could be that, and you, you put that on, but you humble it down to a mere trinket when you describe it. If this was written in third person, and we said, the old woman, inspired by the colors of autumn, put on a trinket, it would be pathetic, Right? We'd be thinking, oh, she really thought that thing could compare to the bedazzling power of nature. It'd be like those 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 women who who put on lipstick and they put on too much and it smears up on their cheek or something. We think, oh, she's trying to look pretty, but she doesn't realize how much she's lost. That's not what we have here. What we have is I'll put on this trinket. We have agency of the trinket wearer. This is, oh, shucks, this old thing? Better put it on. If I'm going to go out there in autumn, this is, this could be saying, I've got nice things. I've got nice things too, but I get it. I, I could really doll myself up. I get it, but they're, you know what? Even though I have nice things, they're all just trinkets, Really? I'm going out there with nature, flawed as I am, imperfect as I am, because I'm part of nature too. But no need to feel sorry for me. I'm in control. I know the, I know the score. I've got agency over what I'm going to call a trinket. It doesn't have to be a diamond necklace. It also could be an actual trinket. It could be costume jewelry, or it could be something, one of those chains that you make out of Chewing gum wrappers, tin foil, could be a hat, could be a smile. Doesn't have to be fancy or expensive. I'm a big tent trinketer when it comes to this poem. Because here's the thing. It's not about the object. It's not about what you're bringing or wearing. It's that you're, you're sporting something new something that will fit, something that rises to the occasion. Because the important thing here is that you feel the power of the changing season, the power and the glory and the beauty, and you don't shy away from it. It doesn't make you shrink back into your house. It makes you take a deep breath and bring your own power to it. 
The trinket means something a little more than you. That's what it represents. It means I'm going to go face that nature with something a little more than I had yesterday. I'm going to bring it. On a day like today, in a world like this world, I'm showing up with, with me. It's more than me. It's me plus. How in the world does Emily Dickinson do this so consistently with so few words and no extra words? She's truly a marvel. I'll put on a trinket for her. <laughs> Another great poem from Emily Dickinson. That was number 32. Patrick Whitmarsh is next. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, Patrick Whitmarsh has been a visiting assistant professor of environmental humanities at Wofford College. He joins us today to discuss his new book, Writing Our Extinction, Anthropocene Fiction and Vertical Science. Patrick Whitmarsh, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks so much, Jack. Happy to be here. So let's start with you and your background. What does it mean to be a professor of environmental humanities? Yeah, I see uh, the importance of the environmental humanities really sort of taking a focus on the history of cultural representations or depictions of the environment or nature. I put that word sometimes in scare quotes, sort of looking at the ways that different forms of cultural media, whether it be literature, whether it be visual arts, you know, whether it be, you know, films, popular films or television, basically just looking at the way, though, that cultural media and art has depicted or represented the environment and how those representations have changed over time. So I'm really interested in my classes when I teach students and sort of directing their attention to, you know, how is this image or how is this particular description of the environment being presented to us? What is it emphasizing? What is it downplaying? And what can this representation tell us about the way that human society viewed its relationship to 
the non-human world at this point in time. Mm. And I really think studying that relationship over time and how it changes can tell us a lot about if really not so much about the natural world or the non-human world. Really, it tells us more about our understanding or right. our impression of what we make of nature, right? What does it mean to us? Right. I could imagine you being a, a science major who was always interested in reading fiction and, and poetry, or I could imagine you being a literature major who was always interested in, in science and, and when that made its appearance in books. Do you come from a background in either, or am I just, uh, <laughs> is there a third way? <laughs> No, it is one of those two. Yeah. So my background is in literature. I have a, get my PhD in English from Boston University. And so I really am embedded more so in the realm of literary studies. But so my interest in science, I always kind of have had an interest in science, but the, the push toward environmental humanities started in my right toward the end of my graduate study. In fact, I had the really awesome opportunity to be a teaching assistant, this big honors college course on climate change that was being taught mm. at BU. It was a team talk course. There was a biologist, a tree ecologist, and a political scientist, a humanist, and an English scholar. All the five of them sort of, you know, teaching this class. And I was uh, one of the teaching assistants. And so I got an opportunity to help with this, you know, to even step up and, and lead a lecture or two, and then teach discussion sections as well for the class. I always had an interest in science, like I said, and I was interested in the intersection of literature and science. But this course, helping out with it, really sort of made me realize that, oh, wow, there are developments, things happening right in the period, you know, that I'm interested in, which really is a kind of second half of the 20th century. Mm. So that was the experience that pushed me in that direction of really pursuing uh, the environmental humanities and making that more a part of my work. Right. Okay. So let's look at the, let's unpack the title of your book. I would guess that a lot of listeners are going to be like me, and I can tell you that I was able to kind of intuit what Anthropocene fiction meant, mm -hmm. fiction about human activities and their impact on the planet. But I was puzzled by the idea of vertical science. So why don't you explain that concept? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So vertical science is a, a term that I, that I sort of came up with and that I use to describe, to get it kind of at its most direct sense new developments in technology and the sciences that really begin emerging after World War II that basically begin to try and depict or to capture images of or just gain new knowledge about the Earth, about the planet. And mm. oftentimes, then the perspectives that we find emerging from what I call the vertical sciences are sort of imagining the Earth or trying to imagine it either from above, looking down at it, or sort of from below, trying to understand what's happening in the Earth under our feet. And, you know, these developments are accompanied by, of course, new, you know, a new kind of a new kind of cultural media that begin emerging, right, where we begin getting actual photographs of mm. the planet, right? So suddenly, we kind of have these new forms of visual media, these new forms of cultural media that reinforce that kind of instinct, that impulse to understand the planet more that really begins kind of snowballing after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And so that the the growth of those sciences and the growth of that, I call it a kind of planetary media ecology, right, where we have these images emerging of the planet, emerging of the Earth, circling it. So more and more people are, you know, consuming these images or these descriptions. And so that's what I describe as, as the vertical sciences, this growth of this new sort of push to really perceive and sort of capture the planet, so to speak, in a scientific mm. way. Okay, so I want to hear some examples of that in a minute. But before we get there, 
I just wanted to clarify something. So I can easily picture the vertical science going up and I can see the launch of Sputnik or whatever it was that was beaming us photographs back. And we could see that the earth, you know, the higher up we go, the more perspective we have about who we are and, and where we fit into the cosmos. And we can maybe see the impact of things that humans can do to the planet. And, and maybe it just gives us a kind of reverence for it and for our beautiful blue planet and so on. And I could imagine that, you know, as you go up, I mean, you'd get, you you could see if you're a little bit above your house, you'd see your your life in a different way. But as you keep going up, it, the perspective would change and all of that. I'm a little more puzzled about the going down. And so I don't think you you mean you go deeper and deeper, but you look back up at the surface, but there must be something going on with these books that, that go underground and somehow that must express or, or give some kind of vision or, or idea of what's happening. So what do, what do the subterranean texts, how do those work? Great. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in part, uh, one way I would answer this, and there are a few different things and that might be, it might, might be a way to segue to your uh, upcoming question about examples. Mm-hmm. But one thing I would mm-hmm. say the underground is this space of, of fossils and fossilization, you know, too. So, mm-hmm. And so the history of paleontology, people digging, you know, exploring fossils, this, of course, goes back before World War II. But it's also after World War II that we begin to get more advanced and sort of a, a growth also of new, you know, drilling technologies. So more of this effort to sort of get into, get under and, and actually really go down into the earth. But that engagement, too, you know, we begin to see and it's after World War II that we get the theory that the extinction event that killed off the dinosaurs was caused by a meteor, right? And so that's something, like you said, sort of coming from above, but the evidence for that is down, you know, under our feet, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. in more the history of the planet. And so this encounter, I think, too, with fossilization and more of this understanding of its relationship, too, to planetary cycles, planetary history, you know, these massive catastrophic events that have occurred, that I think begins opening people's imagination up to their own extinction, potentially. And of course, you know, it's just this happens to be occurring at the same time, right, that people have a lot of anxiety about nuclear war, right, you know, and atomic disasters. So I think this kind of imagination of encountering your own extinction or of, you know, uh, somehow being able to understand the our extinction as being something that's written in the geological history. That's something that I think these writers who are sort of, as you put it, going underground into the subterranean, they begin exploring a little bit more. And it's being accompanied by, you know, these new experiments, new expeditions in in drilling, in going underground, in trying to understand and dig up more of the history of the earth. Mm. And so it's all feeding into this imagination of, I think, humans being able to conjure impressions of their own extinction. Right. And everything I was saying or, or thinking about how we'd get a perspective by going further away from the planet and going higher and higher, it's similar when you talk about when you're talking about excavating or paleontology or something, examining the fossil record, you get more of a, a perspective because we're going farther back in time. Yes. And, and also, too, I think, you know, there's terms for this, right? You know, we, we often I think we're familiar with this term, you know, the final frontier, right? Going spaceward, going away from the planet, going out. But also there's this term deep frontier, right? Mm. So to, to 
point about the perspectives, there's two kind of terms that complement this sort of push away from the surface of the planet upwards into the atmosphere, into outer space, and downwards toward the center of the Earth, right? This, these, it's this idea of kind of these frontier, which, of course, carry a certain colonial <laughs> mentality as well, but also, I think, also entail this, this change in perspective that is beginning to emerge a lot more strongly during this time period. Right. Now, one last question before we get into some examples. Mm -hmm. When I first heard about this vertical science and going up and going down, I was thinking, well, if we if we go back far enough in the literature, maybe we'd be bumping into heaven and hell in these (laughs) in the the reach up and in the digging down. But it sounds like what you have in mind is more of a, a scientific or secular view of the explorations up and down. Yeah, certainly. This is this is the case. I think I'm more interested in a secular or I could say kind of a material basis, you know, for this, for these, you know, descriptions, these representations that begin to come about. And I think that interaction between literature and science is really what I'm interested in here. You do certainly see certain kinds of, we could say, spiritual or religious, maybe metaphors or imagery creep up. Um, one of the oldest, you know, texts that I mentioned very briefly in the beginning of the book is a text by Edgar Allan Poe, who imagines in this early, you know, mid-19th century moment, a perspective looking down at the planet. And he, the term he uses to describe that perspective is the, it's the point of view of earth angels, which he doesn't quite mean in a, in a religious sense, but that, that dimension is there. So certainly there are writers who I think, you know, employ certain kind of religious terminology, maybe for metaphorical or figurative purposes, but that's really not the the thrust of their of their interest. You know, it's not really what they're trying to get at. They're really trying to get more at these developments that are taking place in the sciences and how they are entwined with this planetary history that is potentially, you know, wreaking havoc on global ecosystems and potentially on, you know, human futures. Right. Okay. so. I am not, uh, I know we're going to spend most of our time in the, really in the second half of the 20th century and beyond, but but I'm not going to turn down the chance to hear about something Edgar Allan Poe was up to because he's he such a fascinating mind and he always seems to be ahead of his time and ahead of the rest of us at every turn. So why don't we start with those three? And one of the names I'm just going to ask you to pronounce, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, a long name that starts with an A. And Hollis yes. Hedberg, uh, how do these three examples demonstrate the aims of your project? Great, yeah. So these are the three kind of figures I, I open up with in my sort of sh- very short, you know, overview section at the beginning. And the the middle figure you mentioned is I pronounce Ar Naralungwak, who is a a native uh, Greenlander, an indigenous mm-hmm. Greenlander. Uh, who accompanied uh, Nude Rasmussen on his on his Arctic explorations. Mm. And so with someone who is involved in sort of, you know, environmental, but also exploratory venture here. So these three figures uh, who I'm drawing on, who I incorporate in this beginning, they're all offering us sort of vertical, what I, you know, call vertical perspectives of the planet. So I already briefly mentioned Poe and Poe, it's it's from this short piece, really kind of a a less talked about (laughs) piece of writing called the Domain of Arnheim. It's not a, you know, it's not one of his creepy gothic. (laughs) Right. It's not the Raven. It's not the Raven, you know, (laughs) not the telltale heart. None of those. It's this kind of just this really kind of this meditation on aesthetics 
you know, these characters who are talking about imagining kind of perfecting this kind of planetary landscape aesthetics. And at one point, the character talks about imagining a perspective from above and looking down at the planet. And so even in the mid 19th century, right, we have these, we do see this, right? We do see writers who are imagining, you know, these elevated perspectives looking down at the earth. So I'm not trying to argue that before World War II, they didn't exist. Certainly not. But what I am kind of arguing and why I focus primarily on that later period is that we begin to see more of a technological and industrial foundation for producing and circulating those kinds of images. So what Mm. these three figures is you begin to see that technological infrastructure creep in more and more. So with Poe, it's just this kind of purely, we could almost use the term spiritual, right? There's a kind of ethereal quality to it. There's no way in which these earth angels, as he calls them, you know, are using technology to occupy this elevated perspective. They just inhabit that realm, that part of the atmosphere or whatever we would say. Mm-hmm. What she writes about, what she says is she actually, this is a, a description or, or the passage from her that I include in the book is when she returns actually from one of the explorations, she's standing actually in New York City on top of a skyscraper. And so again, it's not, you know, super mm-hmm. high up, right? Mm-hmm. It's higher. It's the growth of this kind of industrial modernity that we now, you know, inhabit today. Right. I think that her quote is from, I believe I want to say 1925. I could be a a bit off on that date, but it's from the 1920s. And she's looking down, you know, at the tiny, tiny humans. Yeah. Imagining just kind of the sort of just in awe of this. She calls the city like a plane extending out forever, but it's a plane of stones. Mm. So hers is, again, an elevated perspective, but she now is being supported by this industrial kind of moment in this industrial architecture. And then we get to Hollis Hedberg, who is working this part, a passage that I was looking at was from the early 19, I want to say maybe 1959 or 1960, and and he's in an airplane. So now now we got even higher up, you know, getting closer to where Poe's Earth Angels are. But now the only the reason Hollis Hedberg can be up there is because he's enjoying, you know, the technologies of flight, jet propulsion, and and of course, uh, a uh, transportation technology that relies very heavily on fossil fuels. So it's the slow, you know, kind of the gradual creeping in of this ability of technology to reinforce and promote this kind of elevated, uh, very high up looking down vertical perspective. And so I use these three characters to show, you know, this view has been around for a long time. Writers have entertained these notions, but as history has gone on, as we get closer to the mid 20th century, we see the creation, we see the expansion of a techno industrial modernity that now actually is able to reinforce, to produce and to widely disseminate images or imaginations of the planet from a kind of elevated vertical perspective. And so those are the kind of function those three writers are doing is showing, you know, that that development. Mm. OK, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with the 20th century writers.
Okay, we are back with Patrick Whitmarsh. So, Patrick, I'm guessing that what we're going to see here is a kind of, we'll get this sort of perspective as we go up or go down, and we'll also Mm -hmm. hear a lot of, I guess, maybe cautionary tales or sort of examples of hubris and is... Mm -hmm is humankind overreaching with the impact that it's having through this technology. But maybe that's not true for all of these. And I guess we have nine writers that you focus on. So why don't we start working our way through those? Would you say that they're (laughs) in categories? Should we take them three at a time? Or how would you like to divide them up? Yeah, I think it's probably best to do do groupings. If I if I go individually, you know, we run the risk of me rambling on for yeah. for hours. <laughs> right. So we've got Thomas Pynchon, Don DeLillo, and Tim O'Brien. Is that the first grouping? Yeah. We could take that first for sure. They I, I focus on those three. Of course, Don DeLillo occupies also the first chapter, and I use his novel Underworld almost as a kind of emblem for what I'm thinking about when mm. we encounter Anthropocene fiction or Anthropocene novels. Mm-hmm. Insofar as there's an individual to talk about, I'll just maybe talk about that text really quickly. I see that novel as, first of all, you know, it's a huge book. It's over 800 pages. It's really trying to encapsulate this moment of this kind of historical moment that is the main focus of the text, too. So Underworld is set, the dates are 1951 up to the early 90s. And so, of course, I'm, you know, writing 21st century, so going a bit beyond that. But DeLillo's really writing about the second half of the 20th century. You know, he's mm-hmm. writing about the rise what some have called the American century and how it's, you know, entangled with just these, this, you know, really explosion in terms of kind of excess consumption, the production of waste, pollution, and of course, you know, the extraction of fossil fuels as well. And so people haven't talked about underworld as much in that, in that context, but I sort of make this argument that we really can see it as a sort of emblematic Anthropocene novel. And also along with all of those topics it's interested in, waste being a big one, also just, you know, nuclear experimentation, these forms of technological developments that have sort of really wrought, you know, havoc on the earth. So we see that in that novel, but we also see this interest in the way that scientists are engaging more with vertical perspectives and the narrators, the characters in this novel also tend to uh, often you will find them occupying either sort of elevated spaces looking down, or we have characters who are working, you know, in like secret, uh, top secret, you know, think tanks that are sold below the surface Mm. of the planet, very much this vertical kind of imaginary that begins to emerge in underworld. So I see it as this really helpful, I think, text for beginning to frame what we're looking at when we take Anthropocene fiction as our as our subject. So I will say that just in terms of an individual text that I'm interested in. Chapter one is really mostly about underworld, but we can take them, them in grouping. So as you mentioned, I have chapter three is on another short short text by DeLillo and then Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow and Tim O'Brien's The Nuclear Age. So these are writers who are very much kind of of a postmodernist tradition. We kind of often, you know, lump them in this part of this group, white male postmodernists. But I will say the thing that I'm really interested in, too, is these are writers who, although they do have interest as well, who are, are writing and some of these texts are engaging, too, with the depths of the earth, with the interior of the earth, with ideas about geology, they're really also creating this notion, something that I call an orbital narrative perspective. So they're Hmm. interested in the way things like new developments in jet propulsion, in satellite technologies. You know, of course, when they're writing, we got satellites, you know, circling all around the globe. And the the short story by DeLillo that I write about in this chapter is two astronauts in a space station circling the Earth. So really what I'm interested with, with these writers is this kind of orbital perspective, this top down, you know, looking at the Earth from above, 
which is also associated, I think, often with technologies kind of hyper-rationalization of capturing the earth, right, of being able to sort of map things, see where things are. So it goes along, too, I think, with a kind of politics of domination, right, you know, of, of military calculation. And so these are writers who are really interested more so, even though, again, as I say, they do pair it with a kind of geological interest. They are really interested in developing this orbital perspective that's going mm -hmm. around the earth looking down at it. Mm-hmm. And that must have been hard to escape for people who are their age and, and their generation. I mean, they were they were basically coming of age during the age of Sputnik, and they witnessed the moon landing and so on as young adults. And it, it would be a, things that later generations might kind of take for granted, I think, would be they would be monitoring the impact on the human psyche kind of in real yeah. time. Totally. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, these are these are texts that really, I think, capture that kind of, you know, cultural anxiety and fixation of, of you know, these are writers who are coming up in this moment. I think that there's really important dates in some of these, too. You know, Tim O'Brien's The Nuclear Age, I think, begins in 1958. 1958 is the year that Ed Teller, this big figure in the history of thermonuclear, you know, technologies, and was coming up with the idea of using nuclear weapons for geoengineering, right? You know, proposing that we can use atomic energy as a way to actually transform the surface of the earth, mold it to our needs, to our industrial needs. So there's very much, I think, a kind of attentiveness in those writers to that history of the way that the earth is changing. We're having this kind of damage to global ecologies, to the environment that are rising alongside these very powerful post-war technologies. Mm. Okay, so let's take our next group. And I'm wondering if it's as neat as saying it's Karente Yamashita, Kim Stanley Robinson, and Reza Nagarastani, or if I'm wrong in guessing that that's our next group of three. No, I think that's a great group. And yeah, yeah, good, okay. good group. <laughs> Another chapter kind of focus here, so I think it's perfect. And we're talking here about these previous, the three writers we were mentioning, DeLillo, Pinch, and O'Brien being these kind of, you know, white male postmodernists pushed into that group of this high literary tradition after World War II. And with these writers, these are writers who are working, who are in some sense associated or drawing on that tradition, but aren't necessarily as much part of it. Kim Stanley Robinson, many of us probably know, is science fiction, right? That's what he does. He writes science fiction. Uh, Karen Te Yamashita is this writer who very much, I think, is influenced by and engaged with the postmodernist tradition, but is also critiquing it a lot. And Reza Nagarastani, I see, is also a kind of inheritor of that. Somebody who's writing in the 21st century, but again, who is writing ag against certain sort of tendencies or dominant narratives of, of postmodernism. And so one thing I would say with these three writers, what I'm really interested in what they're doing, at least in the texts that I'm looking at, is they are very much more focused on the impact and effects of post-industrial society as it is kind of having this impact on earthly geology. The interesting kind of outlier to a certain extent, maybe on the surface, is Kim Stanley Robinson, because the novel that I write about is Red Mars. So he's actually not writing about Earth. He's writing about a whole other planet. But what he's interested in, what Red Mars is about, is it's about the terraforming of Mars, right? So it's about the changing of its atmosphere, the changing of its actual geological makeup. Mm -hmm. um, and so I look at these texts alongside developments in these new kind of scientific endeavors to sort of drill into the Earth. Uh, attempts to reach the planet's mantle to know, you know, what's going on down, you know, way under our feet. And in Red Mars, the characters actually, the, the scientific project was called Project Mohole. And in Red Mars, we have characters who are drilling, they actually call them moholes <laughs> into the planet to release geothermal energy. So it's a, it's 
taking place on another planet, but it's really, we can read it, I think, as a mirror of what's happening in terms of geoengineering on planet Earth, you know, mm. in the mid 20th century. And so Karen Yamashita and Reza Nagarastani are also interested in sort of the effects or kind of, we could say, sort of speculative representations of extraction of resources. What's happening when humanity is really trying to look underneath our feet in part to understand the earth, but also those efforts to gain more knowledge about the interior of the earth really rise alongside this increase in the search for oil and gas and the extraction of these fossil fuels. And many of these projects, many of these endeavors to explore the earth were being funded by fossil fuel interests. So because fossil fuel companies thought this is great, you know, the scientists are going and digging around, maybe they can help us figure out where might be the best place to look for oil. So Yamashita and Nagarastani's novels, the, the works by them that I look at too, are really interested in what are these detrimental effects that humanity has had in this, you know, especially in our post-industrial age, and what potential fallout are we going to encounter because mm. The extent to which we dug into the earth and really quite literally right pulled up what is underneath our feet out out from under us right okay so the third group colson whitehead jesmyn ward and hari kunzru mm, yeah so the, the this group is the group that i take a look at in the final chapter of the book the fourth chapter and we encounter bits of this already with yamashita and nagarastani these of course are, are non-white writers who are attentive, you know, or at least, you know, cognizant of racial dynamics in the history of these sciences, and especially, you know, the, the particular kind of effects of racial capitalism and of environmental racism. But we really see those those notions emerge more full-blown in these writers in this fourth chapter. So Colson Whitehead, Jesmyn Ward, Harry Kunzru are interested far more in the ways in which the history of what I've called vertical science are, in fact, reliant upon histories of exploitation, oppression, you know, and racism that go mm. back to the colonial era. So centuries before we even get to the mid 20th century, uh, we are already seeing the groundwork being laid for those sciences to emerge. And so these are writers who are writing, you know, these are contemporary writers. The, they're working in the 21st century. The earliest work here, I, I do look at Colson White has The Intuitionist, which is published in 1999, but everything else is post 2000. And some of them are quite, quite recent, in fact. Uh, so these are writers who, although they're writing, they're contemporary writers writing in the 21st century, but they all have this historical outlook. And they're all interest interested, I think, in trying to sort of take historical narratives of uh, slavery, of the way that slavery morphs also into, you know, the modern penitentiary, the carceral age, the sort of new age of uh, the change or the evolution of slavery from what it was in the, you know, colonial area into this new way of sort of of dominating, of keeping track of, you know, people of color, and then also of keeping them really, you know, for, for lack of a better word, still enslaved in this day and age through the modern penitentiary system. And they're looking at these long histories. And what they're doing is they're tracking the way that those histories have evolved alongside processes of environmental exploitation. So these histories of racism, these histories of oppression that have affected people of color also at the same time were enabling, were, you know, informing and really reinforcing the ways in which colonial systems in the Americas and eventually in the United States and what they evolved into in the 20th century were always just interested in extracting resources from the land for the purposes of exploitation. Mm -hmm. And so that's the main focus that I'm interested in with these writers. It's taking some of these perspectives, these scientific developments that I explore in detail in the first three chapters, and then asking, okay, how are these 
histories, not just post-World War II? How are they reliant upon and informed by histories of racist exploitation that go back centuries? Right. So it kind of reminds me of the Green New Deal when that came out and and it was being proposed by some members of Congress and it was proposing a lot of big and widespread changes that would address climate change on the scale that such a, uh, an issue deserves. And mm-hmm. But it also had in there a lot of things about equality and making sure, you know, as I understood it, it was sort of like, okay, this could be a, a sea change in the way that we our economy is organized, and let's make sure that we don't do it to privilege people who are going to try to take advantage of that in order to solidify their their power or their wealth, or let's make sure that we include all groups in these new jobs that are created and, and so on. And it sounds like if someone had come to you as a professor of environmental humanities and said, are there any novels I could read that would help me kind of see if, if this issue has been considered by some of our best fiction writers, you would say, I've got at least three for you to take a look at. I've got at least three. You're absolutely right. Yeah, Jack, great point. <laughs> I will just say quickly, I think there's an important kind of development in environmental humanities, which now we're seeing more and more about, you know, environmental justice. And in my most recent, you know, the semester at Wofford College in the spring, I taught a course on environmental injustice and looking at this. And, you know, there's really a lot of people are saying now things like environmental justice, climate justice, this is social justice. You can't have them without also looking into, you know, the ways that, People of color, other disenfranchised groups have been really, you know, have suffered the brunt of the kind of environmental degradation that we've uh, because of the exploitation of the environment under the Anthropocene. And so the other kind of, I think, helpful sort of bit here is I use the term Anthropocene fiction. People have criticized that term Anthropocene as, as sort of lumping all of humanity into one group and ignoring the disparities between groups. And I think that that's an important point that I also sort of I take account of in my book. I, I do write about it. And I think there have been helpful terms more recently that have been proposed, such as capitalocene, plantationocene, you know, people who are trying to offer alternative dimensions of what we mean when we talk about Anthropocene that try and incorporate that particular kind of, you know, history of capital exploitation, of exploitation of people based on race. So these are really important developments that have been coming out, especially in the environmental humanities. And so that was a part of the big thrust behind that fourth chapter. I wanted to make sure I included something that attended uh, to those concerns. Right. So now as these writers are giving us these visions, and I hate to say that they're kind of giving us visions of the future or where we're headed, because I, I recently spoke with the president of the Don DeLillo Society, and, and he made the point that that wasn't really what, or that hasn't been really what DeLillo was doing, although he's often credited with it. But he, the way he put mm-hmm. it was, if you're really describing the present and you really are understanding it and you're really uh you know wrestling with all aspects of the present it can seem like what you're doing is describing the future you know or predicting the future but it's basically you're just telling people you're just seeing things that other people aren't or you're seeing kind of the the path that we're headed on just because you're describing the things that you see and and that you know are likely to have consequences, and then the readers can kind of see the consequences coming out of that. So I hate to say we're kind of in a, a science fiction world where we're all looking at the next, like the, as if these were all telling us what's going to happen 100 years from now or 200 years from now. But I am kind of wondering about one aspect of that, and that is, are these basically dystopian? 
topic. I mean, are are we looking at dystopian fictions here, or is there room for hope? Or how would you characterize what the people who are telling us about the ways that the environment is being used and the way the resources are being used and, and population growth and things like that. Are are these people kind of canaries in the coal mine telling us that, that we got to turn things around quickly? Are they giving us uh, reasons to hope? Or, or would you say that it's mainly kind of saying we got to hit the brakes hard here or we're headed for uh, something that we don't want to be headed for? Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so much that I that I want to say in response to that. I'm going to do my, my best to, to rein it in. <laughs> and I I will add, Patrick, that your your uh, title does say "Writing Our Extinction," as <laughs> that's even before we get to Anthropocene fiction and vertical science. So I'm I, I feel like I, I this is a legitimate question to ask. Oh, this is no, absolutely. You're you're, you're on. <laughs> um, I. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of things to be said about genre. I would say that, yeah. So there might be dystopian elements to, to, to some of these, you know, texts. I don't think I'm trying to, I don't think anything is really disqualifies here as dystopian literature in that, in that mm-hmm. sense. I mean, but, but certainly you can have dystopian literature that is Anthropocene fiction in the very end, the short concluding section of the book, I do write about Octavia Butler's parable of the sower, which I think, you know, it can be described as a dystopian novel. I don't spend a lot of time with it, um, and that's, I think, an example of a you know a work that is I could see as uh, I see as an example of Anthropocene fiction that also has elements of vertical science in it that is very much dystopian. But previous ones I don't think really are. And I, I loved what you 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 said the the um, I think you said it was the president of the Delillo Society um, mm-hmm. who made this comment. You know that Delillo, when you're writing really sort of intuitively about the present, it can seem like you're writing about the future. And that's what I really, what I do think a lot of these writers are doing, even though there are elements of what I would call speculative fiction in many of these, if not most, uh, you know, of these, of these writers. um, I think that what they're really doing is they're offering, you know, figurative, expressive, in some cases, very imaginative, maybe speculative impressions of our present moment. And they are intuiting the kind of, we could say, the fallout of what's happening on the planet. They're intuiting that fallout as already somehow present in the, you know, the moment that we're living in. So mm-hmm. I think it's telling, you know, thing like DeLillo's Underworld, it's, it's not, a, not really a novel we would call speculative. You know, it's more of a work of historical fiction. There's a passage when the main character is sort of wandering through New York City during a blackout. And he imagines the traffic jams that have ensued, right? Because all the all the traffic lights have gone down. <laughs> um, he's, he imagines the traffic jam as the, the choking emissions of the traffic jam as as the Cretaceous uh, pa- Paleogene extinction event. And so he, it's sort of this. I think it's this way in which writers are intuiting catastrophe, collapse, even extinction within the very contours of the present. And so. Then to, you know, to, so I see that as really what a lot of these writers are doing in different ways. And then to your question about, you know, is this, is there hope or do we really have to get it in gear? I think those two things can kind of go hand in hand. And I, my answer that I want to say is I think all of these writers uh, would say that there is hope. I think they would also say we need to get our heads on straight and figure out what we need to do and make some serious changes and do it fast. But the one thing I would say to try and maybe just bring all these writers together is I think all of them have, have a critical view of ideas of kind of history as progress, right? The idea mm. that history sort of 
had to happen a certain way, right? You know, the industrial society is the culmination of this kind of history, you know, Western progress. There's all these kinds of different historical narratives that are in many different ways have been, you know, rebutted and critiqued, but that still really, I think, inform a lot of kind of thinking in industrial modernity, right? The kind of creature comforts, the lives that we live today as being this culmination of a history that is progress. And that lends itself to thinking, well, of course, history had to happen this way, right? There's a certain necessity to it. I think all the writers that I'm writing about, they have a critical view. They would say, well, no, right? You know, the history doesn't have to happen that way. History never has to happen the way that it happens. It happens because of particular conditions, maybe fortuitously, they're occurring alongside one another that lead in a certain direction, but things could always have gone a different direction. Maybe if you even just changed one little detail, things may have happened very differently. And this is something that climate scientists often talk about too, right? The feedback loops, the kind of complex dynamics that dictate global climate, global weather patterns, these things are all a whole bunch of interacting parts. But if you change just one, things might go in a different direction. So I think what I would say is that if these writers, what they're thinking about, if they think of history in this critical way, and we think, you know, history could be different, well, then that means that we can, our future is not set in stone, right? Mm. The future does not be this kind of doom and gloom climate catastrophe that we often hear about a lot. There are ways in which we can change things. There are things we can do that would ameliorate or potentially maybe even make significantly better, right, the, the future we're heading toward. I know some people disagree <laughs> on how, how much we can do, but I think these writers would say, yeah, absolutely. The, the history is not a, a set in stone thing, and therefore the future is not set in stone. Uh, we do have the power to, to change things. Mm. Okay, well, the book is called Writing Our Extinction. We'll put a little asterisk there and say, or maybe not. Uh, <laughs> Anthropocene Fiction and Vertical Science. The author is our guest, Patrick Whitmarsh. Thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks so much, Jack. It's been a lot of fun. And finally today, we take a deep breath and consider what it means to be living in this world where we might destroy ourselves and everything in it. Wouldn't that be a shame? If our rose goes out of town, to borrow from Emily, or if some onlooker from the future looks back and says, ah, the human is out of town. <laughs> Jeez. Well, let's hear what Christina Jarvis, whose scholarship has led her to a full immersion in the world of Kurt Vonnegut, has to say about reading one's way through such existential thoughts. Okay, we are joined by Dr. Christina Jarvis, who's a professor and a specialist in Kurt Vonnegut. Christina, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Okay, so as an English professor, that's a crazy hard question for me to consider. <laughs> And I'd want to know, I was like, well, is it, is it that like my life is ticking away and, you know, should I choose like Dondolillo's Underworld to prolong my life? <laughs> um, but I, <laughs> You know, something really long, but I'm guessing, <laughs> I'm guessing that's probably not the, the context, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, the context is up to you. I mean, if that's the, uh, oh, okay. yeah, if, I guess if somebody says, you know, if you're facing the firing squad and they say, we will, uh, then you'd be like Scheherazade in the Thousand and One Arabian Nights of <laughs> yes. just, I'm going to yes. prolong this moment as long as I can past the uh, Finnegan's Wake and the remembrance of things past. Yeah. <laughs> so is that what it would be? It would be Underworld? No, oh, okay. no, no, no. I think 
that's only if it if it were that route. I think it would have to be a toss-up between Kurt Vonnegut's Galapagos mm. and Tony Morrison's Jazz. Mm. And I think as a Vonnegut scholar, I feel compelled to you know say I'd have to choose Galapagos, but Tony Morrison's Jazz is also a book that has surprising power and optimism and just the restores your faith in humanity and us as a species and our ability to, yeah. you know, to heal from hurt and trauma, but is fun and joyous and Galapagos is equally, you know, optimistic looking, you know, that there's hope for human beings, even in dark times. So I guess I know it's kind of a cop out, but I'd want one of those books because I'd want to think about human beings persisting. I'd like to think that we'll be around, that we'll be resilient, and that there's an amazing power of love, frankly, in there. It's sort of, I think, both capture in different ways the best of humanity. So I would go with them. I wouldn't, I wouldn't choose Underworld. Ah, that's beautiful. So you're kind of thinking as you head toward the next phase, which I hope will be, you know, many, many, many years from now, but you would be giving kind of a wave goodbye and a salute to humanity and saying, I enjoyed my time as a human. And I, I believe humans are capable of great things and will choose love and I can choose hope and hope that, that uh, the people who will survive me are going to carry that forward. Absolutely. It might be FOMA, but... <laughs> <laughs> and FOMA, we should say, is a harmless untruth. <laughs> That's right. But I believe that future humans, by their very nature of surviving, will have become more evolved and compassionate than we are currently being. So I'm going to keep doubling down on humanity, even if it really seems like not the best choice. Mm. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed that that is, uh, if it is a FOMA, let's hope there's a little bit of truth to it, at least. Sounds great. Okay, Christina Jarvis, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It's been so much fun. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Christina Jarvis for choosing her last book. Or books, and of course to Patrick Whitmarsh, whose book Writing Our Extinction, Anthropocene Fiction, and Vertical Science is available at bookstores everywhere. My apologies to those of you looking for the Cambridge Companion to Comics today. We're going to postpone that one until the book actually comes out, which should be later this month, I think. Next week, we're going to have the Fitzgeralds, I hope. A look at the Scott and Zelda relationship, always fraught, and then we'll have a look at the novel that Scott tried to write about it, Tender is the Night, with our friend Mike Palindrome. We'll also have some other goodies for you. Next week, we've got Henry James around the corner. Ah, should be a good August. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.